and fake arthouse junk the Academy liked to smile on from time to time, just to show it had a brain as well as a heart. He'd played a low-life hood in a homosexual relationship with a local priest who was knifed to death trying to save him. When the clamour petered out and the golden statue was safely stored somewhere he didn't need to look at it, Alan Prime decided to make movies for people, not for critics. One a year for almost three decades. Nothing that followed gave him another nomination. The lack of Oscars never bothered Prime too much, most of the time. From the 80s on, he'd become more and more bankable, a multi-million dollar name who always brought in an army of female fans in love with his chiseled Mediterranean looks, trademark wavy dark hair and that slow, semi-lascivious smile he liked to throw in somewhere along the line. Except now. He'd tried, and every time he began to crease up for the famed smirk, Roberta Tonti had gone stiff in his director's chair, thrown back his hoary aquiline head with its crown of grey hair like plumed feathers, and howled long and loud with fury. This is what I do, Prime had complained one day when the verbal abuse went too far. He was in costume, a long, grubby medieval gown, standing in front of a blue screen, pretending to deliver some obscure speech to a digitized dragon or some other monster out of a teenage horror fantasy, though he couldn't see a thing except lights and cameras, and Tonti thrashing around in his chair like some ancient skeletal wraith. Not when you work for me, Tonti screamed at him. When you work for me, you... A stream of impenetrable Italian curses followed. You are mine, my puppet, my creature. Every day I put my finger up your scrawny, coked-up ass, Alan, and every day I wiggle a little harder till your stupid brain wakes up. Stop acting. Start being. Stop acting. Start being. Prime had lost count of the number of times he'd heard that. He still didn't get it. Tonti was 73. He looked 150 and was mortally sick with a set of lungs that had been perforated by a lifetime's tobacco. Maybe he'd be dead before the movie got its first showing in the U.S. They all knew that was a possibility. It added to the buzz Simon Harvey's little army of evil PR geckos had been quietly building with their tame hacks all along. Alan Prime had already thought through the director's real-life funeral scene. He'd release one single tear, dab it away with a finger, not a handkerchief, showing he was a man of the people, unchanged by fame. Then, when no one could hear, he'd walk up to the casket and whisper, Where's that freaking finger now, huh? Or maybe the bastard would live forever, long enough to dance on Prime's own grave. There was something creepy, something abnormal about the man, which was, the rumours said, why he'd not sat at the helm of a movie for twenty years, frittering away his talent in the wasteland of TV until Inferno came along. Prime swallowed a fat finger of single malt, then refilled his glass from the bottle on the table. It was early, 
But the movie was done, and he didn't need to be out in public until the end of the day. The penthouse apartment, atop one of the finest houses in the Via Giulia, set back from the busy Lungo Tevere, with astonishing views over the river to St. Peter's, had been Alan Prime's principal home for almost a year. It was empty, save for him and Miss Valdez. This is for promotion, right? he asked. See, the woman said, and patted her briefcase like a lawyer, sure it contained proof. She had to be Italian, surely. And the more he looked at her, the more Prime became convinced she wasn't unattractive either, with her full muscular figure, that always turned him on, and very perfect teeth behind a mouth singularly outlined in carmine lipstick. Mr. Harvey say we must have a copy of your face, because we cannot, for reasons of taste, mass-market aversion.